Hey, this is WJ from Culture Cast Radio, and you are listening to the 4D Podcast Network. Home Alone. I'm your host, Michael Malone, and today I'm sharing the second half of my conversation I had with Robert Riggs. If you've not listened to the first half, Robert is a Peabody Award-winning investigative journalist whose reporting is primarily focused on the criminal justice system, which is what led him to expose the corrupt prison system in Plano, Texas and its surrounding areas. You see, back in the 90s, there was a spike in crimes due to the overpopulation of the prisons, and Robert discovered that some of the high-end prisoners like killers and rapists were all being let out in the middle of the night and causing havoc in these cities. This is where he began to track a serial killer by the name of Kenneth McDuff, a.k.a. the Broomstick Killer. After over a decade of investigating these crimes, Robert created a 17-part podcast series called The True Crime Reporter, which takes you through his personal investigative journals, behind-bars interviews, all about the mass corruption in Texas and the Broomstick Killer. The conversation we had was absolutely fascinating, and, and honestly, I think I might have said maybe three words during this second part of our conversation. I mean, Robert does such a great job of setting the scene and taking you step by step through his personal journals and tracking and, and, and everything of this broomstick killer guy. I mean, it just it hypnotizes you. Also, I should warn you, this episode contains graphic details about rape, violence, murder, and sexual abuse. So if you have children in the room or or those types of things make you uncomfortable, I highly suggest skipping this episode. You can listen to Robert's podcast series, The True Crime Reporter, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this, that. The story that we're talking about today about Kenneth McDuff is the first season of that podcast series. So if you go to listen to it, make sure you check out the first season. It should be 17 parts. And now, here's the other half of my conversation with Robert Riggs. Enjoy. Well, the first season is out. It's 17 episodes, and it's called Free to Kill. It's already being, uh, it's in pre-production for a television series by one of the cable channels. And it is about a serial killer named Kenneth Macduff. And Kenneth Macduff was what's called a great white shark of serial killers. The worst, uh, the most difficult to catch, the most feared uh, of all. And this comes from FBI profilers that helped me at the time trying to understand what I was working with. Uh, Macduff was a sexual sadistic serial killer. So... Um, he was about violent, sexually violating his victims in every manner imaginable, but also torturing them and torturing them and inflicting pain for hour after hour after hour, bringing them back from death and re-torturing them until he had a phrase. Now I'm going to use them up. That was his phrase. And then he would kill them. Uh, they let this guy was a serial killer 
He'd been on death row. His sentence, with everyone on else death row across the country in 1972 when the death penalty was struck down, was commuted to life. No one ever imagined that you'd let these people out, but they did in Texas. And what I, I, I follow you uh, all the way through. We had a prison overcrowding problem in Texas. Politicians, both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, talked tough on crime, stiffer penalties, but they didn't build any new cells to hold people, the violent offenders. So it was a huge political scandal that I revealed that in the dead of night, the parole board, which, by the way, was appointed by the governor. The governor didn't want to be embarrassed. They started releasing 150 inmates a day. Oh, my God. Uh, and not telling anybody. And they quickly, you know, they went through the hot check riders and, you know, the minor offenses. And then they got, as one parole board member later admitted, we started on the bottom of the barrel. And they started releasing these violent, violent offenders, violent records. And we had a just this surge of epidemic of violent crime in the cities across Texas. I had arrived here. I saw it. And at first I thought, well, it's the old adage, you know, for TV. If it bleeds, it leads. It's to get viewers. Then you realize, oh, no, this stuff is this bad. And it's that widespread. Started digging into it, uncovered that Texas had uh, let 65 death row inmates out. It turned out later to be 84. And in the course of doing that, I later, I had the mugshot of one of these 65 that was from Fort Worth in the story. It was kind of a throwaway. I actually concentrated on another death row inmate had been freed who had he and his accomplice had taken five sheriff's deputies who were trying to serve a drug warrant hostage, took them to the Trinity River Bottoms in downtown Dallas and executed them. Three killed, one gravely wounded, the other one Escape jumped in the river. Horrible. It was the biggest manhunt since Bonnie and Clyde in Texas when that happened. And now the guy's out. But I, I had this other guy in there and I got a phone call from a, a woman that she's a waitress at a truck stop in Waco, Texas. And she <laughs> said, uh, I saw the man who killed my daughter on your TV newscast last night. And that she told me who it was. And she'd kind of been leading her own investigation. Her daughter was a drug-addicted sex worker. And, you know, serial killers prey on sex workers because, you know, who cares? You know, the police wouldn't investigate it. So he was preying on them. But he also started, he was abducting, uh, quote, respectable women, you know, accountants and convenience store clerks and stuff who had families that would miss them and report it. And so I started, I had been digging in, how did he get out? Then I find out that this is going on and I find a, there's a federal prosecutor and two U.S. Marshals that have, they've taken up the hunt. They suspect he's behind all these disappearances. And I cross paths with them. And it was interesting. The FBI wouldn't take the case. The local police wouldn't take the case. and they, they, the marshals knew his kind of his history and they were like, look, we got Jack the Ripper on the loose here. It's, it's him. And it was him. So I take you through the manhunt, which turned into a nationwide manhunt. They brought in the 
top fugitive team for the U.S. Marshals uh, to hunt. And so I take you through that. I take you through my corruption investigation and how I uncover paroles are being sold and how that's taking place. Uh, then we cover uh, McDuff on death row, a friend of mine that was a uh, journalist that wrote a book about him. He went on death row and interviewed him. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I knew so much about what he'd done to his victims. I was just like, man, I am not going in there and face, look at this guy. I did cover his two. He had two capital murder trials. They want, they wanted an insurance policy. He is the only man in Texas history to get three death penalties. In his oh my God. Oh, do, yeah. uh, does, do, do we have a, a body count on how many that he, how many women did he actually kill in total? Or is it that Eight. still? 18 known, but they think it's way, way up there because he, uh, he drove hundreds of miles hunting and he called it later in an interview with one, an investigator. He called it hunting. I'm hunting. He was a predator. The interesting thing about him is he, he had accomplices and to him, murder, rape, torture was a performance art. And he always, he wanted an audience to show off for it. And he would always find these, uh, kind of dumb, uh, you know, they were ex-cons and stuff, but, and they were actually afraid of him in one sense, but he, he'd find them to go along with him and help him. But, you know, he's the guy, uh, you, the, the, uh, you know, one of the accomplices from an earlier abdu- random abduction murder of three teenagers. Ended up in an insane asylum over, couldn't take it anymore. And in this case, it was two, uh, high school boys and a teenage girl put them in the trunk of the car, shot them in the head. And then now it turned out torture for her. He became known as a result of that murder, the broomstick killer, because he used a jagged broken broomstick to violate her. And then later when he was quote, I'm going to use her up put her on the ground and put it across her neck at, to strangle and break her neck. Um, wow. And he, he would enjoy every minute of this. So we track that. We track him to his final days on death row awaiting execution when, and we talk to the in, group of investigators who get him. One of them really tricks him into revealing where the body is of a woman who had been abducted from a car wash in Austin, Texas. And it was a sensational thing in Austin. It rocked the world. And she just vanished. There was her car covered with suds, uh, keys in the ignition, purse on the seat. Bystand people, neighbors had heard a scream, saw this car speed by. They were later able to identify him from mug shots, but they didn't get a driver, a plate number, nothing. So that was a final thing of, of finding where he buried her body and he would bury his victims bodies in remote rural isolated areas and interestingly when you talked I when I talked to the ex-cons and stuff that ran with him I even talked to the ones who were in prison with him he'd be driving down the road and he would always comment look off and say hey that'd be a good what you think it'd be a good place to bury a body it's what he thought and so eight years later, after he's murdered this young woman, 
he uh, go, he's drawn a map and they can't find the location. They take, secretly take him off death row and bring him to the scene and have him sit in the patrol unmarked car about, good Lord, uh, a couple hundred fifty feet away to give directions and an ATF agent would shout the directions to this federal prosecutor's name is Bill Johnston, who had you know been on the crusade to get this guy. And it's in a dry riverbed and brush, and the, the, everything's changed. He leads them directly to the spot. And what it turns out, what the profilers explained to me, is these guys, they relive the murder step by step through their lives. That's, you know, that's what they get off on. And he did this. I mean, it was two other victims, he drove, he drew perfect maps of where they were. Wow. So, which is, you know, spooky, spooky. So we follow, we follow all through that. We follow you. You will hear the journey. And I, I don't think it's ever been done, uh, from how he leaves death row to go to what we call the death chamber or the death house in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, that's been open since the late 1800s, uh, to step by step what he does in the waiting cell to his last meal to the, Dead man walking into the room to how the executioners get the room ready. Uh, and because I've been there, I've been in all of this. So for a listener curious about how that happens in this state, you'll get it all right down to his last words to inmates, putting him in a pine box that inmates made and inmates burying him in an inmate cemetery for unclaimed bodies. Uh, with an unmarked grave. The grave has only got his death row number on it. Oh my God. How, how long did you, did you work on putting all this together? This feels like years. This feels like a decade of work. It, it practically was. It went from 1991 to his execution in 98. And along the way, what happened was when I started investigating how he got out, oh my God. The system was corrupt to the core. Uh, I mean, it was, it was no shortage of stories of gangs and what they were doing and how they were running stuff on outside the prison, corrupt guards, corrupt wardens. Uh, how, where do you, where do you even be, begin to put a story like this together? Because I feel like I, I can see you in like one of those empty apartments where you just have things on your wall with thumbtacks and pieces of yarn tied to them. Where like, okay, this leads to this and this guy is this, and this is how this is connected. <laughs> it was, it was kind of like that. Uh, I was, I was already investigating, um, uh, after that call, I was I, I was already investigating how are these guys getting out of here because the parole board members there would be a, I'll give you an example there was a there was a case in Houston a young mother stopped at a, a red light uh, two guys out on parole been out for like a couple of weeks they pull up they're running low on gas so they want another car they carjack her they they grab her by the throat in traffic pull her out of the car. One of them, just for good, shoots her in the head with a 30 caliber carbine. Oh, my not really God. Consistent. And then they get behind her wheel and they back up over her body back and forth and take off. This was the sort of thing happening. And I would begin to notice always the tagline is they're out on parole. So 
Some parole board members and the chairman were being summoned to the Senate Criminal Justice Committee and uh, to be asked about these things. And they always had these these uh, little statements. It was always the same thing. They'd say, well, they were a model prisoner. Uh, and we don't, we don't have a crystal ball. We're doing the best we can do. Well, what ended up happening uh, when you talk about all the lines and cards and all that? <laughs> yeah. So I started digging, and in Texas, uh, the inmate files are not a public record. You can't get them under Open Records Act. It's actually a misdemeanor crime for somebody to re- release them. Uh, so I, I started what I call dialing for sources. I got the phone book, the directory, the phone directory for the parole board and for part of the prison system. And I started on the parole board and I got the local telephone directory. You know, we didn't really have the internet yet. And I just started looking up phone numbers, calling people at home at night. And I had parole board members and higher ranking parole people cuss me out <laughs> and hang up the phone, you know, and I knew then, boy, I am on to something. Cause I just say, Hey, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, Kenneth McGuff. I'm not talking to you, you MF and all. Well, they all turned out to be corrupt, corrupt. Even though I was knocking on doors and I'll never forget, I knocked on the door of a secretary to one of the parole board members and she opened the door. I tell her who I am and she's terror stricken and she sticks out and she ner- sticks her head up nervously, looks side to side and said, you got to leave. You got to leave. If somebody sees me talking to you, I'll be fired. I'll lose my job. You know, please don't tell anybody you come to see me and slams the door. Again, I knew, okay, we're on to something. And eventually, well, and I ran into an honest parole board member. And he confided in me. He said, there is something wrong here. Uh, I'm even, I'm afraid of my fellow parole board members. There is something going on here. There is something wrong. McDuff shouldn't be out of prison. I, I don't know what's going on, but it's wrong. And, uh, but he, he said, I have to be a confidential source. I, I, I fear for my life that I really knew. So eventually I found a source who went in the file room and started pulling and making copies of these inmate files in McDuff's file. And then I saw the truth. And when you went through his inmate file and parole file, and you know, how he behaved in prison, what he was doing, oh boy, he wasn't a model prisoner at all. He's a real bad boy in prison. He and uh, turns out he had attempted to bribe a parole board member before, uh, and then oh my God. and then some dedicated clerk would put in phone messages into the file, which were really about bribes to get him out. Oh and God. so they're saying yeah, they're saying the, the uh, quiet part out loud. <laughs> yeah. So I'll never get so the parole board chairman who was in the middle of all this, and he'd been a big respected politician in the state and run for governor and all. Uh, so he thinks he's got me. I sit out on camera with him, and suddenly you see the light go off. He realizes Robert's got the file. And he gets what I call cotton mouth. It was always a a telltale sign of somebody lying. Their mouth goes dry and they start smacking their lips and tongue. <laughs> and, all. and he's just, just, just like that all the way through. And he just, uh, uh, just hung himself. He 
just came came apart. Later, that federal prosecutor, Bill Johnson, prosecuted him. And uh, so it, it really was just a dig, 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 analyze the records that are being leaked to me. I couldn't, I really couldn't have done the story without those records being leaked because the truth was in them. And I started to get them for other inmates that were in these awful, awful crimes. And it was, there it was. Hey guys, I know you're enjoying this podcast right now, but I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might also enjoy. Today's episode is sponsored by the Is This Entertainment podcast. The hosts, Jacob and Ben, are two self-described hermits that play music together. They have episodes about music they're listening to, the TV shows and movies that they're watching. And recently on the Is This Entertainment podcast, they recapped the last season of The Mandalorian. They're also reviewing episodes of WandaVision with some comedic and perhaps strange philosophical takes. I know WandaVision has just been taking over my Twitter feed right now, so if that's something you're into, I highly suggest checking out this podcast. Ben and Jacob are new to the podcasting world, so show them some love. Go over there, like, share, subscribe to the podcast, let them know how they're doing. You can also find them on Twitter at isthisentpod. That's isthisentpod. And you can visit them anytime at isthisentertainment.com. Head on over to Is This Entertainment Podcast and subscribe. separate facts from fiction when you are talking to these people you're saying you're going door to door you're cold calling these folks um how, how do you know is there are there just is it body language uh involved when when somebody's well uh, leading you on no you're trying to corroborate stories corroborate information okay she told me this he told me this she told me this is it all the same? Are they have the same story, same facts? That's what you're looking for as an investigative reporter. But ideally, I was a documents-based reporter. I wanted the paper. And when I got those files, I had it. I mean, it was all there, <laughs> indisputable, you know. Um, so, I mean, the, God, the things that, you know, the, for instance, the guy, the serial killer, he had violated parole. Violated parole with a, uh, a basically kind of a, a race crime. He, he threatened to kill these African-American teenagers on the street because he passed them and made a racial slur and they bowed up about it. And so he's sent back to prison for a, a parole violation. Hey, they intervene and they get him back out. They put him back. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. yeah. What? Well, what is the what is the reasoning behind that? Is it all money based? Is it they just don't have room in the prisons and they're like uh, uh, oh, allowing them out? This yeah, was, there was two two things going on here. This was all about money. You also had the political corruption. Is that we're gonna we don't want the scandal of a federal judge taking over our prison system. We don't want that to happen. Now, you know we've been tough on crime. We don't want that to happen. So. Who's going to know we're releasing them all in the middle of the night? Well, it showed, the public doesn't know it. Heck, law enforcement didn't know it. They were stunned when I started reporting this. Um, but you had some parole board members and staff, by the way, 
uh, go, hey, we're letting the dregs out. Who's who's going to notice these other guys that are taking money? Who's going to notice? And in some cases, because of the the overcredit, they're going to go. They're going to release them anyway. They just go shake down the family for money, knowing they were going to get out. So one of the schemes oh were the the parole board chairman uh, with a lot of this controversy that I brought about and stuff. He uh, earlier he prematurely resigned as chairman, but he secretly went out and set up shop as a, quote, parole consultant. And suddenly, at some maximum security prisons, parole officers, there were officers assigned to the prisons, were passing out his business cards. And they became oh known God. as the get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he was, he was sending out letters. And he had staff going through the files of inmates to identify by zip code who was from an affluent area. And then he would call them and he'd send them a letter telling them that, you know, I can, I can assist in getting your, your son out of prison early. And I found a lot of these people. Um, so it was, wow. I mean, it was systemic corruption in the system. Wow. Then one of the things that started happening, uh, I started you know, inmates were started reaching out to me too and putting me on the stories. I mean, one of, one of my best sources, this is going to shock you, was the hitman for the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh suspected, what? suspected of 13 murders inside the prison. He was genius IQ. The guy was amazing. Great, great conversationalist. You never, if I, if I could cover the gang tattoos and take him to a cocktail party, you'd never know it. Well, yeah, he's a superior race. Of course, he's super smart. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, now, he, he claimed uh, he claimed that he left. He left the bro. He left the gang. You, there's a saying here, blood in, blood out. You don't leave the gang. But he's, oh, no, I, I left them. What was so interesting, I'd go to see him in a prison. And they were like, OK, let's go down to the chow hall, talk to you in there. And we we walk down the corridor and there's this. There's these lines down the center, you know, about walking the line and the inmates on each side, they have their lanes. And then there's a wide space in the middle of staff and stuff. And you don't go there. Well, he's walking, he's walking down the lane and the inmates across the corridor. These are wide corridors and cell blocks. They would hit the wall. They were like, and turn their heads. It was like, Oh man, I do not even want to look at that man and have him think I disrespected him. That was the kind of fear that he, and he wasn't a big, he wasn't big, but he was a, he had blown up people in prison. They had never, never made a case on him, but he turned out to know all kinds of stuff going on and was extremely helpful. There were other inmates too. And you know, they want to rat, ratting people out. Um, I had a, uh, to give you an idea of how bad all of this was. I had a white collar criminal call me. He'd been a big investment guy in Dallas and he had ripped off a ton of doctors here and it was in, and, and it was in federal court and got a slap on the wrist, you know, maybe a country club and the doctors were political and they went to the DA. They were outraged. And so the DA opened the case on him and, and gave him, they got a, you know, like a 10 year sentence. So here's a, 
white collar guy with sports car. He's sent to the state prison system, the worst place for a guy like that. But he got approached. He paid the money to get out. And, uh, he is, uh, <laughs> he's at a release, another prison they use for releases. He's, boy, he's just about got freedom. And, uh, uh, a prison guard hands him a note. And, and the note is from the chairman of the parole board saying, uh, it's going to take a little more money. We need some more money. Oh my God. He wrote a note back saying, look, I con the best guy, the best, you know, professional is out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're not conning me. I'm not paying this. He sends that back. So he is sitting there. It's the day it has come for him to be walk out the prison gate. His brother has flown in on their jet to pick him up. And he literally is walking towards the exit. And the guards come up and grab him and put him in shackles. And he's thrown on a prison bus. And we've got prisons all over the state of Texas, and their buses always moving inmates from prison to prison and what have you. And those the buses by the inmates are called the chain, and it comes from the old days of chain gangs when they're chained together. He's put on this bus, and for about a month, he is lost in the system. They move him from prison to prison, wherever the bus stops. He spends the night at that prison. They put him on another prison bus. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so his family, they can't find out what happened. Where is he? Nothing. It's like he doesn't even exist. And then he is is, uh, sent a message that, hey, you better not be screwing with the parole board chairman. And uh, he uh, talked to me. He wrote me about it, talked to me about it. It was really interesting. Um, and he had a right to do this. He was like, uh, I, w- I don't want any guard. I don't want anyone in here while I'm talking to you. I can't talk to you on camera. I can't be loud. We got a whisper. I got a right to you. And so my sources pulled his file for me. You know, I had the sources in the system. And sure enough, there was stuff that corroborated all of it in the files. These guys were so brazen. They left, they left a trail in the files of their bribery. That's, uh, do you think they did that because they thought that no one would ever, because they're not accessible to the public, that they, it was almost like a, yeah, like a, a private secrecy. message between them. Yeah. Yeah. It was a secrecy. Like, Hey, you, you, nobody will ever find this out. Wow. And boy, everybody was, uh, everyone was getting upset. Uh, when I started, I even exposed her. They had a secret parole panel that a panel, a three member panel of honest members would vote to against a parole. Now, let me tell you about the parole system, certainly in Texas, probably elsewhere, too. It's not like the movies. They don't sit down at a table and the inmate sits down in front of them and they, you know, make a decision. Are you going to be a threat to have you reformed? You know, that sort of uh-uh. Maybe one of the members will talk to the inmate, and then the file is passed to the two other members. We found out in the case of McDuff that uh, the person behind the bribery is the one who did the interview, and no one else. They didn't even open his file, the others. They didn't look at it. Didn't look at it. Oh, my God. And um, so, you know, that's the way it, it, it was working here. Not like the movies. Weren't even looking at the file, but all the 
the dirty little secrets is what I call They were all in the files. It was a, just a whole trail of it. Because secretary, it was so interesting. The secretaries would take phone messages and they'd put them in the file. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, it was. It, it was. So... It's so bold to think that nobody, that it will never be uncovered, that nobody's ever going to find it. Like, that's so bold. Well, and the federal prosecutor who took him down uh, told me and the investigators, you know, we'll never know. We will never know how many thousand people walked out this way because it's a needle in a haystack. You know, you've got a system of 110,000 inmates. Where do we look? What file? Now, I had sources kind of leaking to me. Hey, look at this. Look at that. Uh, And then they just were expedient. They actually took the parole board chairman down because they wanted to do it fast. They wanted him out on uh, like they did uh, Al Capone on income tax evasion, huge income tax evasion. It's uh, yeah, it's it's it is a blood chilling thing there. We we have one episode that. You will hear, and it's heavily edited, edited, you'll hear the confession of his accomplice in the abduction of a woman from the car wash. And uh, I've received uh, through Facebook and other messages, women saying, I, I couldn't, I had to go on, I couldn't finish it. I, I had a, uh, oh my God, uh, I had a podcaster, a male tell me that, man, I, and I've had this from other men say, I had trouble going to sleep after hearing that. Maybe I have to sleep with the lights on. Because, <laughs> you know, we don't, we normal human beings, we, th- the things they do, these guys do are unthinkable. We don't think this way. And I think your, 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 your listeners, they'll, there's an episode, the final episode, episode 17, is about the mind of a serial killer. We've got one inside earlier that's about what all the investigators said about his mind. But then I sit down for about an hour and a half with Stephen Michaud. He's a fellow investigative reporter. We knew each other, each other for years. He's got a Netflix series out called Conversations with Ted Bundy. Now, 40 years ago, he conned his way into the Florida State Prison, and he got 150 taped hours of interview with Bundy. And it's, it is fascinating. And I've so, seen that on Netflix, but I've never watched it. it, it that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to check that out as well. So in 83, around 83, he and another investigative reporter, I know, they wrote the definitive book on Bundy because they spent all this time with him. and They were inside the guy's head. And he then went on to write some books with the uh, one of the original FBI profilers, if you've seen Mindhunter, that's John Douglas. I knew John. He helped me some. But there's another one called... Love that series. Well, there's another one called Roy Hazelwood. And Hazelwood's specialty was sexual homicide. That was He was the man on it. And so when I got into Macduff and all of this, uh, he really helped me understand what am I dealing with here. And I met him through me show. So... Stephen and I sit down and compare notes about McDuff and Bundy. And Bundy, you know, he is the serial killer of all serial killers in terms of, you know, popular culture interest. But McDuff is way worse, far, far worse. And as I said earlier, he was considered, McDuff was considered the white, 
the great white shark of serial killers. And that's the way Roy Hazelwood would classify them. It's a small group, but it's the fact that they're, it's sex and sadism. And no, I mean, there is nothing there. Cold. It's, and I used to say, I even said in my coverage of him, and even today the marshals will say, boy, you had that right. I used to describe him as his eyes like a shark. There was nothing there. And I would talk to him during the murder trial, going in and out with the bailiffs and stuff. And um, uh, it was, you know, but the other, here's the scary thing. Most of these guys are very, if you don't know what they've done, if you know what they've done, they're spooky. But if you don't, they're very ordinary, ordinary guys. Now, Bundy was very handsome, but these other guys are kind of really ordinary. I talked to somebody that had worked in a, in a uh, convenience store with McDuff at one point. And they just thought he's this big old goofy guy. Um, but there was a, there was a switch that would also flip. I talked to his cellmates from maximum security. And the interesting thing about McDuff, he didn't have one prison tattoo. And oftentimes you'll, you'll, one of the expressions you'll hear when you, you get to prison in Texas, you got to decide who am I going to ride with? What gang for protection am I going to ride with? And I'm going to have to have that tattoo. He had none. Now he leaned to the Aryan Brotherhood. He's racist. No tattoos because he was six, four, six, five, massive guy pumping iron and his hands. He could palm a basketball. He had these massive hands. And he went after petite, brunette, young women. And his whole deal was he'd grab them by the throat one-handed and lift them off the ground. So I talked to his cellmates and they said, you know, the guy would be a normal one of the guys. And then something would set him off. And they said it was like a bomb would go off and everybody would clear out, like, get out of the path of this guy. He's going to kill somebody. That's fascinating. He is a fascinating, fascinating character. Uh, I, I, I remember when he came out of the courthouse and you, I think you're going to hear this in the, in there because I kept tapes. Uh, I looked at him and, uh, and I, I had a little of an attitude and I looked at him and said, so, uh, and he'd been, you know, found he's going to be executed. He sent us to lethal injection. And so I said, Hey, Kenneth, what are you going to do? What now? And he turned and looked at me and gave, stared and stopped. He said, well, I guess I'm going to die. You know, everybody has to at some time or the other. And then his last words were, and I'm not, I'm not going to give it away. His last words uh, to the warden were about that very thing and about how he wanted to have control over life and death. That was his deal. That's, that's incredible. Um, I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to check out the series. I really appreciate you, you coming on and talking to me. guys enjoyed that conversation oh my god i i I had chills i had chills (laughs) when robert was talking about 
you know, he, he just does such a, a great job of setting the scene. And uh, since we've talked, I started listening to his uh, his podcast, The True Crime Reporter, which I highly suggest you you getting into. If this is if this is in your wheelhouse, if you're into true crime stuff, uh, you definitely need to check this one out. It is absolutely fucking chilling. And you can find more about Robert at TrueCrimeReporter.com. And if you're looking for his podcast series, you can find it on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this at. It's called The True Crime Reporter. And it's uh, you want to make sure you're looking for the first season about Kenneth McDuff, the broomstick killer. You can always follow along with me on Twitter or Instagram. Everything is at Malone Comedy. That's at Malone Comedy. And if you had a good time today, please like, subscribe, share these episodes with your friends. Really appreciate it. Once again, you can find out about Robert Riggs and his true crime podcast at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that I have another podcast on the 4D Podcast Network. It's called Speakerphone, and I do it with my buddy and singer-songwriter Ryan M. Brewer. It's so much fun. We usually uh, talk about whatever's trending, some current events, and then we kind of just razz each other and have a lot of fun. It's uh, actually stemmed from the ideas of us having these great phone call conversations over the years and nobody getting to hear them. And so, well, we started to record them to share with you. It's so much fun. I think you'll love it. It's called Speakerphone. And you can listen to that on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this at. Thanks again for listening.